Good afternoon and welcome to Deep in History. This is your host, Marcus Grodi, and I'm joined with my uh, partner, Monsignor Jeffrey Steenson. Hello, Monsignor. How are you doing? Greetings. as well. Thank you. Monsignor's joining us from um, Upper Minnesota. He's on a lake up there. You can see in the background of the picture uh, his pet uh, bird, uh, the pet loon. Um <laughs> And uh, it's great to have you join us, Monsignor. And I said he's, he's my partner in this series in which we're slowly working our way through this uh, classic book by St. Irenaeus, Against Heresies. And uh, I can't remember if we're number eight or so in this series. We, we thought at first that we would just quickly go through book two, because there's so much in the whole book anyway, but we thought we'd quickly go through book two and then jump into book three and four or five that have some true gems, historical uh, quotes that are uh, just repeated by writers throughout the history of the church. But there's there are important things in the rest of book two. So I uh, Monsignor and I decided we'd slow down just a little bit and make sure we go through all these things. Some of them may not seem significant, but but I think the reason that we look at them is they help us see the things that Irenaeus took for granted, and maybe even more so that we take for granted in our faith. But Monsignor, the, some of the things we're going to look at, it seems like today, as important as they are, do also emphasize that even though we recognize the importance of the early church fathers, we aren't saying they're infallible. Is that right? That's right. Yeah, that's right. We're going to encounter, we were talking about this, we're going to encounter an argument for the age of our Lord that um, at least I'm not aware of existing anywhere else. That's, yeah. that's going to be a fascinating thing to discuss. So, yeah, the reason that we, John Henry Cardinal Newman and so many others throughout history have emphasized the need to get back to the fathers, the um, the uh, the bishops gathered for Vatican II, led by John the Twenty Third, and and the uh, the theologians that emphasized this resourcement going back to Scripture and the early Church fathers. It wasn't. Because we go back to these men because they were infallible, but because they were a trustworthy witness, the apostolic deposit that was passed on. And, and of course, they were freely reflecting on Scripture themselves and coming up sometimes with, with wild ideas. I was thinking this morning, I was reading, I've been reading through Augustine's City of God, and he... Um, I'm trying to think of what it was Augustine was saying. Oh, I know what it was. He was, Augustine was so convinced that every psalm was written by David that he believed that whenever David used the name of a psalm writer, even who lived long after him, 
it was because Dave had uh, David had the prophetic understanding that Asaph and these other writers, even during the time of the exile, mm-hmm. that that was David's prophetic understanding of the future for him to write psalms that were really more pertinent to when Israel was in the exile. And in my view, there's Augustine really stretching things to force his perspective on the psalms. Because you can't find a a Bible anywhere that claims every psalm to David. We recognize that they had different authors. But that points out the uh, that these men were who loved Christ and were trying to carry on and pass on faithfully the deposit of Christ had their own views, and we'll encounter that in the book. So, Monsignor, we're going to begin, though. So we're working through a number of texts, and we're beginning uh, in a second series of, of these quotes um, on page 151, Monsignor. And this was a quote that you had pulled out that you wanted us to look upon. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah, it's on page 151, and it's um, it's uh, section 19, or chapter 19, uh, section 9. And I, I, I pulled this one out um, because I found it interesting how we have here, um, in a nutshell, what the Gnostics taught about the Trinity. Hmm. And... and um, the way that I'll just read a couple of sentences here about this. Um, For those who have understanding and that touches the truth ever so little will endure them saying that there is another father above God, the framer of the world, and that there is both another only begotten and another word of God, whom also they affirm to have been produced in inferiority and another Christ, who they say was made with the Holy Ghost later than the other eons, and another Savior who is not even of the Father of all, but is contributed to and put together by all these eons who were made in inferiority. So, um, and then skipping down a little bit, he says, not only therefore do they deal irreligiously with the Creator, calling him the offspring of decay, but also with Christ and the Holy Ghost, saying that they, that decay caused them to be produced and that the Savior as well came after decay. So it gets complicated here, but basically what um, Irenaeus is saying that the Gnostics were arguing is that what Christian, what we believe is as Christians is the Blessed Trinity, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Um, these belong to a different uh, eon, a different age. Um, so they're produced by what he calls decay. They're inferior to that one who is above it all. And, um, and, and so he just points out here that um, they blasphemed the Holy Trinity. And when, they, when the Gnostics write about the Savior, they're not talking about Christ, the second person of the Trinity, but they're talking about one that has come from before the Trinity. So it's 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 a blasphemy of, of the first yeah. order, and I just thought it was just uh, um, 
because Irenaeus has become very important as we go on in terms of how he articulates the theology of the Holy Trinity. Um, and he's very, very attentive to it here in terms of dealing with the Gnostic arguments. And I suppose one of the reasons I, I personally really appreciate Irenaeus is his insistence throughout on being careful to go beyond what God has revealed. Because when we go beyond what God has revealed is when we get into trouble. And that's what the Gnostics did in spades. They had their own issues, one of which was how, how can a perfect creator have any contact with this sinful world? So you have this, this connection here. And so how do you explain that? And it isn't that they were just coming up with, with crazy ideas because what they were honestly, I'm going to give them the sincerity of this, that they were trying to understand how to apply Scripture. Um, Paul wrote, for if, any, for if we have been united with him in a death like him, we shall certainly be united with him in the resurrection like his. We know that our old self was crucified with him so that the sinful body might be destroyed and we might no longer be enslaved to sin. So in that whole section in Romans 6, in 5 and 6, he deals with the sin in this body of flesh. Well, the Gnostics are trying to understand, okay, the spirit is good, the body's bad. So that's their view. So how do you understand this? Same thing with the Trinity. You have this God, the creator. Well, how could he be connected? So, you know, we end up with all these views. My point in saying this is that I, I wish even at other times in history the church would have said, let's don't go beyond what the Lord has revealed. Right. Because many of the battles that will come after Irenaeus in the next 100, 200, 300 years are not merely dealing with people outside the church, but dealing people with inside the church battling over understanding these things that really are beyond us. And Irenaeus says, just keep to what the Lord's told you. Be satisfied with, with that. And as you point out here, as soon as you go beyond it, you end up denigrating. Yeah. Denigrating our God. All right. Anything else on that passage, uh, Monsignor? No, I think I'll, I'll turn it over to you now. The next section, he goes right from there in chapter 20 to deal with this question with how long did Jesus preach? How long was his ministry? And actually, he deals off and on with this in the next uh, 20 pages or so in different ways. So you see that they were debating that. And they're debating it on term, in terms of the data they received in the synoptic gospels in Matthew, Mark, and Luke. John was a bit different. So how long did he, um, how long was his ministry? And um, Monsignor, as a, from your patristic studies, 
um, the, the reason they were struggling with how long our Lord lived and taught was not merely um, what the Synoptic Gospel said or what John said, because there were other things they were using, right, to calculate. Um, in other words, the words, the numbers. How do you interpret this, right? I mean, that was one of the Gnostics' issues of interpreting numbers and letters and words. Yeah, um, and I, I think this whole thing started, though, um, with the Gnostics making this argument that Jesus had only a one-year public ministry. Don't you think that's how this all yeah. all gets start, started? Because they... They wanted to do that to fit into their system of numbers. Yeah. Uh, I assume, anyway, that's what's going on there with that. In chapter 10, 20, section 1, he begins with a statement, Moreover, that they bring into their device the parables and acts of the Lord improperly, incongruously, we proceed to show. And so the next section, he's going to show how these Gnostics take the parables and the, and the acts of the Lord and then twist them to fit into their system. And I can't help, as I think about this, that we'll see throughout the history of the church different groups that break away and do the same thing. Um, I remember this is a joke. I'm going to pass along a joke, but I can't help remembering this the, the professor that taught me homiletics used to collect bad exegesis. And he told our class one time that when he was driving one Sunday afternoon or wherever, and he was listening to a Bible preacher, and what he heard was so funny to him, he had to pull the car over, you know, because he heard the Bible preacher, he was preaching on the story about Jesus and the disciples in the boat. And Jesus told them that they were not to be concerned with the leaven of the Pharisees. And the reason, this was the preacher's interpretation, the reason that Jesus said that they were not to fear to be concerned about the leaven of the Pharisees is because there were 12 of them. <laughs> See, oh, that's brilliant. <laughs> yeah, yeah, and and so there you have the people listening to this preacher trusting these saying that said, "You yeah, don't worry about the leaven of the Pharisees because there's twelve of you." Well, wait a second here. That's not what it meant. That's not okay. Well, that's kind of what Irenaeus is trying to say throughout the second. He's screaming, "Guys, this is not what it means." And but you've taken it to mean a whole bunch of things. And you've taken it to yeah. imply you know how long Jesus lived because of this. That's not what it meant. It's kind of what Irenaeus is saying, right, Monsignor? I mean, just all the way through. Yeah, and the Gnostics were, they all wanted to get it. Their, the, the verse, they wanted it, it was the year of the Lord. So they got to they gotta make it, everything fit around that, I, that idea. So they want to squeeze his life into that one year. Yeah. Uh, I mean, we don't want to go through. So many things, you know. I mean, they're interpreting Judas to be a type. Uh, and it's like, how, wait, it's a time out here. Judas is not a type of the Savior. 
I mean, and they were going that far. Um, the second, I want to jump over a bunch of sections here because he's, Irenaeus, I think, is almost embarrassed that he's got to go through this because it's so absurd, but he's, that's his point. He's pointing out the absurdity of these interpretations on the bottom of 156, um, chapter 22, section 1, the very bottom. He says, For the prophet spake not of a day having the space of twelve hours, nor of a year having the measure of twelve months. For the prophets themselves confess that they spake many things in parables and allegories, and not after the very sound of the words. I mean, this this is comparable to those that insist in Genesis 1 and 2 that the only way you can understand that is in a literal seven-day creation. And from the very very beginning, Augustine and, and others of the fathers said, there's problems with this when you go so literal with that. I mean, for one thing, you've got three days and the sun and the moon are not created till the fourth. So if that's true, how did you have seven 24-hour, how did you have three 24-hour days when the sun and the moon weren't even around yet? So, you know, understand that there's, it doesn't deny the authority of Scripture to question the, the, the literalness of things, but it recognizes that, as he says here, the prophets themselves confess they spake many things in parables and allegories. Okay. And you remember when we were young, younger people, um, as a teenager, I can, I can remember all these prophecy conferences we'd go to and hear all these elaborate theories about the end of the world based on how they, they interpreted certain passages of scripture. Right. It sort of reminds me a little bit of um, the way the Gnostics now here have taken things so out of context. Is because they come to it with a context. They come to it with assumptions. Exactly. And, yeah. And then uh -huh. they make things fit yeah. that. Well, the, another large section, which is chapter 22, section 2, I have the entire section 2 highlighted in my copy because in this section, he's he's addressing this very issue of the, the application of the, the word day and the uh -huh. word year, whereas the Gnostics were insisting that they meant a literal 24-hour day and a literal 24-month year, and then from that they were implying that, well, that meant our Lord only had a ministry of one year, and he's using an example of Scripture itself to say it can't have meant a, a literal day and a little year. And but with this, how else? How else would you have um, gotten three Passovers? <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, that's that's the argument earlier that he makes. Um, I'm not sure if we're at that yet. No, we're, we're going to get that the next patch. Yeah, we've, I've jumped ahead. Of no, it, there's yeah. no problem. But it's still in the same issue. And 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 I do believe this is important. Those of us that read Scripture, those of you listening, no friends, Scripture alone, folk. I was that you, you get on the passage, how do you interpret it? How do you understand 
the literalness of passages in, in, in Irenaeus is pointing out in this early days of the church, we've got to be careful. We've got to be careful. And here's what he says, uh, and this is section 9. The day then of recompense. Now, he's quoting Isaiah. You're, Isaiah. you're in section 9 now, Mark? Yes, uh, it's 20. Okay. 22, section 2. Excuse me, section 2. Two, two. Okay. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, yeah my reading glasses uh, failed me for a second okay. there. Um, okay. Section two. He's dealing with the prophecy in Isaiah sixty-one about you know the 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 future judgment, and he mm-hmm. says the day then of recompense, and that's quoting Isaiah, is a name given to that day in which the Lord will recompense every man according to his deeds, i.e. to the judgment. And the acceptable year of the Lord is this time wherein those are called by him who believe him and become acceptable to him. That is, it is the whole time from his coming to the consummation wherein he wins to himself as fruits such as are saved. For the day of recompense by the prophet's saying follows the year, and the prophet will have uttered a lie if the Lord preach for a year only, and if he speak of him. For where is the day of recompense? So in other words, he's saying, if, if as Isaiah said, the day of recompense was to come after the year, the acceptable year of the mm-hmm. Lord, well, if Jesus only preached a year, well, then where's this day of recompense? It hasn't come yet. So the day and the year must mean something different, Irenaeus said. He says, for where is the day of recompense? Since the year is past and the day of recompense is not yet. But he still maketh his sun to rise on the good and the bad, and sendeth rain on the just and the unjust. And while the righteous suffer persecution, affliction, slaughter, sinners are in abundance, and they drink with harp and psaltery, but regard not the works of the Lord. But they ought, by the manner of speaking, to be close conjoined. This day of recompense should follow on the year. For it is said, to proclaim the acceptable year of the Lord and the day of recompense. It is well, therefore, to understand by the acceptable year of the Lord this time in which men are called and saved by the Lord, which is followed immediately by the day of recompense, i.e., the day of judgment. And indeed, this time is only not, it's called not only a year, but also a day, both by the prophet and by Paul. Now, Monsignor, I, there's a number of this sections that jumped out for me why I wanted to point it out. First of all, is the is his intent, and that is to show that what Isaiah meant by the day or the year were allegories. In other words, times, not literal 24-hour, 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 24-month entities, right? Right. And... This is a part of his overall argument. But there were a couple other things in here, Monsignor, that jumped out me that help us understand Irenaeus' theology. 
First is, the day of recompense is a name given to that day in which the Lord will recompense every man according to his deeds. So Irenaeus believed that one day we will stand in the judgment and will be held accountable for our deeds. Irenaeus was not a faith alone guy. Good point. That's an excellent point. <laughs> and these days, you know, these times, these year, um, day, these these metaphors that he's using in a way that they're to be interpreted symbolically, but they're still real mm-hmm. because basically um, St. Irenaeus is a kind of an early dispensationalist. Hmm. And we'll, when we get further into um, his work, we're going to see, see that um, because he believed in the literal kingdom of Christ yep. being set up in Jerusalem. Um, so, so even though he is condemning the Gnostics um, for their literalism, he's not treating these things as totally symbolic. They they represent um, an age to come. So, um, so if we talk about the the acceptable year of the Lord. He doesn't mean a literal 24-month year, but he does mean a literal time period. Yeah. And the day is not necessarily a literal 12-hour day, but it is a literal judgment. It's going to happen. That's correct. And he believes, because Irenaeus's foundation for there are two things, Scripture and the apostolic deposit of faith that has been received from Christ through the apostles. And mm-hmm. he will say, as Tertullian will affirm later, that if you want to know whether a church is true or a teacher is true, you see, did he get it from a church of the apostles? And and so that's the issue. That's, that, that's how it's that's true. Right. Yeah. Okay. So, and Irenaeus is also going to say, and we've got to be careful to limit our teaching to that, when we go beyond that and we start saying other things, the question is, do these other things connect with Scripture? Are they a faithful representation of Scripture? And or, and or are they a faithful representation of the deposit of faith? And you know better than I do, Monsignor, that that became an issue for John Henry Cardinal Newman. Because here, Newman is in the 19th century trying to ask the question, now, how do I connect those things that were in Scripture or in the apostolic deposit of faith as received by Irenaeus or Athanasius? How do I connect those with things that were later that I don't find earlier? And that's where the development idea came from. That there must be a connect. Yeah, there's a connection. Just like the roots of the tree and the the fruits and the nuts on the tree, they're all organically linked to each other. Um, The deposit of the faith and the fruits of the faith are the same. 
if we really had, you know, if this were a class and, and all of us were meeting, you know, once in, once every night for three hours for 10 years, we could go through detail line by line. But I think what we would be seeing is that if you will, Irenaeus is trying to point out that the theories of development of the Gnostics don't work. Because all the things that the Gnostics are trying to argue is that their views were a development, if you will, of Scripture, based on their criteria of development, and they were wrong. And that's what he's trying to show. Right. But he's, li- he's drawing them back to that source of authority, Scripture. And so that's why I'm going to point out, before I move on here, number one, Irenaeus holds to the idea that the acceptable year of the Lord, I'm quote, I'm reading, is this time wherein those are called by him who believe him and become acceptable to God. That is, it is the whole time from his coming to the consummation where he wins to himself as fruits such as are saved. To, to me, that's very important to understand. He's believing that the time we live is a time wherein those are called by him who believe him and become acceptable to God. It's not merely something was called before the beginning, predestined, once I've accepted Jesus, I'm saved, automatic, once saved, always saved. No, 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 it's a time of develop of of our growing acceptable to God, it's during this period. Augustine and City of God will rec- you know, be different than Irenaeus, but he'll recognize that that the time period that of the millennium is not merely the future. Augustine will point out it's the time we live. This is the time in the kingdom. This is the time. So he makes Augustine makes the accept the connection of the acceptable year of the Lord with that Irenaeus will see, will see it a little different. And I just wanted to point out that thing, that his theology is this idea of we are held accountable for our deeds as we live during this acceptable time of the Lord, and uh, the fruit of this time will be those who are saved, and we will be accountable at the end of this time for how we've lived this faith. That's just the underlying theology that's here uh, in... um, in the writings of Irenaeus that, that come out in his writings. All right. Um, again, this, this whole section is, is showing that the monastics use this to, to point out the shorter time, and it goes to the next section. Again, the issue of did, did our Lord only live and minister for his ministry? Was it only one year or was it three? And in section three, those of us who have had the great privilege, if you will, I'm being kind of tongue-in-cheek, of, of spending years in seminary, which were, of course, great years. I spent five years there for a three-year program. Uh, but um, remember the debates about how long the people, what, did, did Jesus have a one-year ministry or a three? Do you, Now, Marcus, I don't remember that in my, in my seminary. I, I always was... I always felt it was, or taught, remember being taught it was a three-year ministry. It was tell me, um, I I'd think, love to learn. I'm guessing it's because the seminary you were 
that probably didn't have very many fundamentalists hanging around. Probably not. No. I went to an evangelical seminary um, that had a, a, the range of people at our seminary were all evangelicals from, on the one extreme, absolutely fundamentalist, literal, creationist folk, all the way to people on the other who were starting to be open to women's ordination. I mean, but they were all evangelicals. There were no liberals in there. Yeah. So I think the more, not liberal, I'm not, I don't mean that at all, but the, those who were open to history, exegesis, were, were fully accepting of the Lord following Irenaeus's argument in chapter, th in section three, that how could, he have, how could he have only had one year when Scripture itself said he, he appeared at three Passovers? Three Passovers, yeah. That, it seems like that, um, that, um, that's a Q, QED that went toward the bottom of the page. Now there are three times of the Passover. These three times of the Passover are not one year alone. Uh, every person, whatever, will confess. Yeah. That's a pretty great argument. He's and he had, he had detailed them earlier. And so, uh -huh. yeah, there should be nobody around. However, where it comes out against you know literalists in Scripture is, okay, you've got Matthew and Mark and Luke, and in those three, he only goes to one Passover. In John. He goes to three, and those three in John are, and these are itemized by Irenaeus, yeah. first, when he made wine out of water in Cana of Galilee, second time mm -hmm. he went up to the feast of the Passover Jerusalem when he cured the paralytic, and then a little bit down lower on one page 158, right. lastly, when he had raised Lazarus from the dead. So in John, there's three. But Matthew, Mark, and Luke seem to only emphasize one. So if you're literal scripture, how do you put those together? And so I remember guys doing backflips trying to come around with, you know, to explain this and that and, and, and why. Kind of like why I just mentioned that Augustine did backflips to try and argue why David could have only been the psalm writer of all 50, even though the Psalms yeah. are obviously talking about things that happened a hundred years later. Well, how could that happen? Well, so you get, so, but my point of pointing this out, Monsignor, and I think you affirm this is that the argument was solved in the second century. And, and why does it go on? Yeah. And, and I mean, here's another wonderful indication that um, he is, that Irenaeus is a, a close student of, of the Apostle John because um, he knows his gospel inside and out. Yeah. And we're, you know, in the next section, when we get into this debate about how old Jesus was, it, it almost sounds as though, um, you know, he really is the Johannine guy because John doesn't um, focus so much on, on locating the actual, um, right. you know, point. Point, pivot points of Jesus' life. Um, we call, you know, the early church used to call John the spiritual gospel because he was writing about 
deeper things than yeah. just the pure history of Jesus' life. I think the literalists who want to put the four Gospels together and make sure they somehow fit. I mean, I just this morning pulled down out of my library a synoptic compilation of the four Gospels where uh, actually in Greek and then in English, they they put all the texts flowing. Yeah. And it's quite complicated to do that. It's and a harmony, right? It's a harmony of the Gospels, and that's been done many yeah. times throughout history. And mine happened to be done by the American Bible Society, and, and again, Greek on the left side, left pages, and English. And my point of mentioning that is they have Matthew, Mark, and Luke kind of fit together a lot because there's a lot of things quoted. Um, you know, a good example of that is the parable of the tenants, where mm -hmm. it's the uh, uh, Mark sees it as the first of the parables. In other words, the, the you have this landowner that makes a garden and then makes it great, and then he goes away, takes his RUV SUV and takes off for a camping trip, and then he leaves it for people to take care of to water the garden for him, um, and then. He, every once in a while, he'll send somebody back to to get his money for it, and they keep killing him. And, and eventually, the man decides, "Well, I'll send my son, and they'll certainly respect him." And of course, then they kill the son. The point is, that's in Matthew, Mark, and Luke. That's in all three. Uh, there are parables that aren't in all three, but it isn't in John. So, how do you fit them together in a? if you're putting the four in a chronology, in a harmony. And this issue of, you know, where do you put the wedding of Cana into the harmony when that isn't mentioned in Matthew, Mark, and Luke? Which of the Passovers does it fit with? Don't know. I don't know. I mean, I'm sure there are... You know, Oh. But the, the point is, I see this as Irenaeus pointing out very simply, as he's speaking to the Gnostics, he's speaking to any of us to recognize the danger of sola scriptura. The dangers of sola scriptura. And one of the reasons is that those of you in sola scriptura trying to solve this problem, if you just look at Irenaeus, you see that he's dealing with this very issue 1,800 years ago. We've got to look at the traditions of the church to see that the questions that we continue to encounter in Scripture have been dealt with for 2,000 years. And, and, you know, there's no sola. Whenever a person picks up a book and reads, um, you, if, if you don't have a, a, a tradition that you'd fit into... You bring your own presuppositions with, and yeah, um, and there, then these next pages are full of his complaining about how the Gnostics did precisely that. Yeah, the capital tradition would be something that was passed on from our Lord to the apostles that has been accepted as unchangeable, if you will. And for example, that would be the idea that the church is structured with bishops. 
that's a capital T tradition. Now, how those bishops operate or what they're supposed to wear, you know, that developed later. You know, whether they walk around with a crook or not. Uh, I, I meant when I meant by walking around with a crook. A crook's ear, yeah. I meant a, a shepherd's cane, not one of their financial advisors. But um, the, uh, you know, that's a capital T tradition. It was a part of from the beginning. And we see that in the Apostolic Fathers when Ignatius writes that you shouldn't celebrate the Eucharist done by someone that isn't in union with the bishop. So there's a capital T tradition. But there are little T traditions, and one of those would be the fact that we're listening to an early church father, Irenaeus, who learned it from Polycarp or learned it from John. So that's why his interpretation is something we ought to listen to. Doesn't mean it's infallible, but -hmm. it's a part of the tradition, the package. In fact, why we interpret the canon of Scripture we see in these bigger puzzles. Now, I think what I'd like us to do is we can do one more section, which might take a little longer, but this is this fun one. Which is is fascinating, this next one, yeah. This is an example of where... Irenaeus himself argues something that few would even consider today. I mean, like you said, Monsignor, what is the assumption amongst everyone you've ever known of how old Jesus was during his ministry? Uh, well, traditionally, his, um, his crucifixion happened at the age of 33. Um, how we get there, um, well, we were talking about this a little bit. You know, we have from Luke helps us to uh, locate the time of the birth of Jesus. Um, and we, and then we can locate his baptism because it has to fit before John the Baptist was martyred. Um, and we, we have real historical figures so that we can, you know, establish when that happened. Yeah. Um, so... You know, I think. You and, know, then, and, and then there are three Passovers. And three Passovers, so three years in his life. And so we're, we're pretty much, you know, give or take a year or so. Um, our Lord was 33 when he went to the cross. Right. However, this, this is a different argument we find here in, in section four. And. Here's the argument, and, and four, section 4, 5, and 6 are all about this. And it begins in section 4. The fact is, this is Irenaeus, being 30 years old when he came to baptism, afterwards at the con- complete age of a teacher, he came to Jerusalem so as to be properly called by all men master. Now, before I go on, Monsignor, he writes as if this is not something necessarily he is trying to argue, but that he assumes it. He assumes his audience understand that the age of a teacher, of a master, is a certain age. Which is what, about 30? Is that what you would, is is that the context here? 40. It's 40, okay, sorry, yeah. 40. Okay. He goes on. For he did not seem one thing 
while he was another, as they say, who bring us an imaginary Christ, which is what you were referring to earlier, Monsignor, but what he was, that he also seemed. Being then a teacher, he had also a teacher's age, not rejecting nor ever passing men, nor breaking in his own case the law of mankind, but sanctifying every age by their semblance which it bore to himself. For he came to save all by himself, all I mean, who through him are newborn unto God, infants and little ones and boys and youths and elder men. So let's pause there. So actually, Monsignor, Irenaeus is really making an interesting statement here in that, that our Lord came to save all by himself, all, Irenaeus says, who through him are newborn unto God, infants and little ones and boys and youth and old elder men. I mean, that's a profound and thought. This, this, is, this is extraordinarily important for what is to come because when the incarnation of Jesus Christ touches all of humanity in its fullness, so every human condition um, will find its place, if you will, in, in Christ touched it. And he touched it not just with his word, but by actually experiencing it in his, in his human life. And, I, you know, the background of this for what St. Irenaeus is dealing with is, and the other fathers in this age, they're dealing with this heresy called docetism. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's a word that comes from the Greek, Greek word dokain, or dokain, um, to seem. That it only seemed that Christ was human, that he was pure spirit. He just was animating a human body, but other than that, he had no connection with it. And um, uh, this was a very important element of the Gnostic heresy was basically to deny the incarnation of our Lord. And I like here in section four of how, how um, almost poetically, yeah. Irenaeus just goes on to show how our Lord Jesus came to touch. Yeah, read that next section, Monsignor. Read that next section. It goes on from there. It's really, it is fascinating. Okay, so where did we, did we beginning with, did you finish? Here? Beginning with, Therefore, he passed through every age, beginning with that sentence. Right, okay. Therefore, he passed through every age, being first made like an infant unto infants, actually not like, that was a heretical slip of the tongue, (laughs) being first made, not like, but being first made an infant unto infants to sanctify infants among little ones, a little one to sanctify such as are of the same age, being made to them an example both of piety and of righteousness and of obedience. Among youths, a youth becoming a pattern to youths and sanctifying them in the Lord. Thus also he was an elder among elders in order to be a perfect master in all things, not in setting forth the truth only, but in age too. In other words, not only with words, but with his very life, sanctifying the elder person as well, becoming an example to them also. Lastly, he came even unto death, the 
that he might be the firstborn from the dead, having himself the preeminence in all things, the prince of life, first of all, and going before all. Yeah. It's beautiful it passage is. there. In fact, you know, being a preacher, you could almost see uh, his thinking of why, in the end, he had to argue that our Lord must have been older than 33 when he died. Because for this to preach, he has to have been an elder among elders. So where are you going to get that from? Well, he was a master. He was a teacher. And in their culture, you weren't a master or a teacher unless you were over 40. So he must have been over 40. I mean, that's kind of the background here, if you will. Yeah. Because that's where... It, yeah. it, but, where do you think, I mean, because it's difficult to avoid at least the wondering whether he learned this from Polycarp and ultimately from John. I'm fascinated with that. Um, that's a big question, I think. How do we resolve that? How did, how did the apostles get Jesus' age wrong? Either. Did they? I mean, speaking as one, as a scholar myself, who just knows everything. Um, uh, <laughs> and you do. That's true. Either, either Polycarp and John didn't talk about the age of Christ. That it's somehow in that conversation that never came up. Yeah. Which left yeah. it open for Irenaeus to speculate. Or they would have said something about his age in the 30s, and then Irenaeus countered it. That would mean he changed the tradition. Or they passed on this idea that he was a master, he was a teacher, which in their culture meant he was in his 40s. But what? So there's a number of layers to his argument. One is this preachable image that our Lord lived at every age, from infant to death, which is combating the docetist idea that it wasn't like he was, he was made. Number two, again, this idea of being a master. But there's more into it than here. I'm going to go on from here, because it really is a fascinating argument. He goes on to section five. But they, to maintain their own device concerning that which is written, to proclaim the acceptable year of the Lord, say that he preached for one year only and suffered in the twelfth month. They have been forgetful against their own cause, doing away with the whole of his task and taking away the most indispensable and most honorable part of his life. That elder part of it, I yeah. mean, Irenaeus says, wherein he yeah. was before all as a teacher also. For how had he disciples if he did not teach? And how did he teach if he had not a master's age? For he came to baptism as one who had not yet fulfilled 30 years, but was beginning to be about 30 years old. Or so Luke, who hath signified his years, hath set it down. Mm -hmm. Now Jesus, when he came to baptism, began to be about 30 years old. So that's what Luke says. 
Mm-hmm. And he preached for one year only after his baptism, completing his 30th year. He suffered while he was still young and not yet came to riper age. That's what these others say. But at the age of 30 right. years is the first of a young man's mind, and that it reaches even to the 40th years everyone will allow. And Irenaeus goes on, but after the 40th and 50th year, it begins to verge towards elder age, which our Lord was of when he taught as the gospel and all the elders witness, who in Asia confirmed with John the Lord's disciple to the effect that John had delivered these things unto them, for he abode with them until the times of Trajan. So Monsignor, here Irenaeus is saying, speaking of it as a fact that he learned from John. Not directly from John, but through Polycarp through, through Polycarp, John. yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah, this is, I mean, basically this is, this is sort of in a practical way, the apostolic tradition in action. And he takes us up to the time of Trajan, who um, we know was emperor from 98 to 117. So even at the early um, part of Trajan's reign, that puts John the evangelist at a pretty ripe age. 98, right? So there's this idea that our Lord lived at every age of a person, therefore dying for every age of person. Number two, there's this issue of a master who ought to be of this age in their culture. It'd be like us in our age. You don't get to teach unless you get a PhD or something. Well, okay, well this, but he's another argument. And this is in section six. A whole other argument, and from Scripture. Yeah. He says, Yea, and the Jews also who were then disputing with our Lord Jesus did most clearly signify this. You see, Irenaeus is insisting on this. He goes on, For when the Lord said to them, Your father Abraham rejoiced to see my day, and he saw it, and was glad... Well, they answered him, Well, thou art not yet 50 years old, and hast thou seen Abraham? Now, just pause for a second and think of yourself saying that phrase to somebody. Well, how can you say this? You're not even yet 50. Okay, that's what Aaronaeus is saying. That's what the Jew said. You aren't yet 50 years old. Well, here Aaronaeus goes on. Now, this is with consistency said to him who hath not got beyond 40 years but hath not yet reached his 50th year, though he be not far distant from it. Whereas to one of 30 years old, of course, it would be said, thou art not yet 40 years. So Irenaeus is saying the fact that they say, thou art not yet 50, implied that he, well, he must be getting close. 30 wasn't close. So there's Irenaeus' argument. For they who wanted to prove him deceitful would not surely lengthen his years far beyond that age which they saw him to have arrived. In other words, the Jews were trying to undercut his absurdity. They would have hurt their own argument if they had stretched it too much. That's what Aaron is saying. But, he goes on, but they were stating his age as nearly as they could, either truly knowing it by the taxation enrollment or guessing it by the age which they saw he was, more than 40, but not anything like 30 years. For it is quite unreasonable 
that they should falsify by 20 years when they wasted, when, excuse me, when they wanted to prove him later than the times of Abraham. A little bit later, he was not therefore far from 50 years, and therefore they say unto him, Thou art not yet 50 years old, and hast thou seen Abraham? Monsignor, I find it fascinating that he made such a strong argument, but I've never heard this before. No, I haven't. And it seems, you know, um, I, you know, if we were sitting at Irenaeus' feet, I'm, I might raise my hand and just say, you know, teacher, could I ask a question out of stupidity? <laughs> aren't you making, aren't you using scripture in the same inflexible way that you complain the Gnostics did? <laughs> You know, Marcus, what's also interesting here is yep. that like in the in the edition of John Keeble that we're using, there's no notes here. They pass over it in silence. And I'm, I'm going to go and do a little bit of work on this. Yep. Because I have, I don't recall ever reading anything, anybody writing on about this. Yeah, at this point, yeah. Yeah. It's fascinating. Irenaeus speaks almost matter-of-factly that Jesus must have been in his 40s. And, and the point is, he's trying, his point is trying to undercut the poor reasoning of the Gnostics. You would not think he would be throwing out there a debatable theory that would undercut his argument. So he's using an argument that he just assumes by the data, hey, in our culture, everybody, of guy's a master, that means he's in his 40s. Number two, hey, they, the Jews themselves, would not have exaggerated their argument. If he was only 30, they wouldn't have said, you're not yet 50. They would have said, you're not yet 40. That's what Irenaeus says. But they said 50, so it must mean. Yeah. But as you said, Monsignor, I've not heard anybody address this, so it's, which means is that the idea of Jesus dying at age 33 has so universally captured scholarship that this has long since been forgotten. You know, and I, it just the, shot across my mind, if Jesus was 50 when he went up, up to Calvary, the Blessed Mother would have been in her 70s, maybe? Well, not that old, but... Well, I'm certainly old social security age. As old as me. <laughs> yeah. Um, but you're right. If he was 45, let's say, then she would have been at least 60 plus. Yeah. And uh, 45 carrying a heavy cross up a hill is pretty tough, much tougher than a 33 year old. Uh, so anyway, uh, this is just, those of you in the audience, this is just fascinating to see this. And that Monsignor, yeah, if you come up with anything, I, any of you listening, if you are out there doing research on internet, they find out any of the other commentators that have dealt with this, um, I'd love to hear from you. Um, it's, it looks like we, we've pressed our envelope on time here, Monsignor. So why don't we, why don't we pause there? if you will. Okay. And where we're going to pick up everybody next week is the, um, the quote, we'll, we'll start at chapter 23, section 2. 
And we'll deal with the quote that goes like this. For if they affirm the things done by the Lord to be types of those which are in the Pleroma, the type ought to be kept throughout. And so we'll begin by dealing with how the Gnostics, and not just the Gnostics, but all the early church fathers, uh, were very much uh, accepting of the idea of typology. Old and Old Testament typology to new, and then also New Testament, you know, the whole ideas of type and analogy, and and we'll start dealing with and that. Then, next week. And then we'll we'll be able to discuss um, at our next in our next podcast his wonderful insights about how to prepare yourself spiritually to read Scripture. You know, the kind of disposition that you need to bring to it, not as a judge, not as a critic, right? Someone that is genuinely seeking to learn from the, from the Father. From humility, and uh, exactly. Yeah. Thank you, Monsignor. Could you close us with a prayer? Yep. I, I took a prayer today out of the, out of the um, Liturgy of the Hours I'd like to offer today. All right. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. God, our Father, in your care and wisdom, you extend the kingdom of Christ to embrace the world to give to all people redemption. May the Catholic Church be the sign of our salvation. May it reveal for us the mystery of your love, and may that love come effective in our lives. Grant this through our Lord Jesus Christ, your Son, who lives and reigns with you in the Holy Spirit, one God, forever and ever. Amen. Amen. All right, thank you, Monsignor, for joining us, and thank all of you for watching us watching on this program. We'd love to hear from you. Go to chnetwork.org and leave your comments or questions. Or uh, if you look up some research on this topic, we'd love to hear from you. So once again, we'll look forward to being with you next week. Thank you. Bye-bye.